by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision-making. And in true baller style, we'll serve it up with good old-fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now, at 5'8", from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. Also, weighing in at just over 200 pounds with a full beard from the Philadelphia 76ers and the other MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Daryl Morey. So what can you as a listener expect from trash talking? First off, you will get informed. We're going to give you a courtside seat to discussions with high profile thought leaders in the sports media and entertainment industries where you'll gain insights into some of the biggest issues in sports. And since data and analytics are so near and dear to our hearts, we'll always be sure to take that lens and ask our guests the tough questions. In our 10th episode, we are thrilled to welcome Michael Lewis, author of 18 books, mostly bestsellers, a financial journalist and contributing editor to Vanity Fair. One of Michael's most well-known books is Moneyball which covered the 2001 Oakland Athletics season and thrust analytics as a tool into the mainstream. For very different reasons, Moneyball played a critical role for both Daryl and me in our careers, as well as the creation and acceleration of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Michael's most recent book, The Premonition, released in May 2021, pits a band of medical visionaries and contrarians against the wall of ignorance That was the official response of the U.S. government about the outbreak of COVID-19. Today, we'll cover insights from the world of sports and finance, dig deeper into some of the characters in Michael's books, discuss the different mediums Michael is using, books, podcasts, and movies, and learn more about his thought process and skill at seeing things that others don't. And we will do our best to actually be the moderators of the podcast and not let Michael, who is an expert in podcasting, take over. But let's see how we'll, well do Well, then my guests are Jessica Gelman and Daryl Morey. They're well-known, well-known podcast hosts who don't actually know what they're doing. And since I, Michael Lewis, am a podcast host who does know what he's doing, I'm going to take charge here okay. and start this conversation. Perfect. Um, we all have a lot in common. One of the things we have in common is our love of your conference, the MIT Geek Geek Fest, Sports Geek Fest, that I feel like I had some responsibility for, like some tiny input with 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 like by writing Moneyball and kind of being at the beginning of all this. And and I'm excited to hear what you guys are thinking you want to do this year, uh, like what the themes are. Well. Like, so I think just, just to get started, um, Michael, I think we're, we're still in the early days. The students are uh, just turning over, just, I think, a little bit of perspective, and we're getting ready on the content for this year. Um, you know, last year, a big focus in terms of, like, as we think at your podcast, which, by the way, is phenomenal. I love how you've gone from refs to coach to experts. 
one of the big things that we're seeing in sports analytics is more this increasing focus on the individual, the player themselves. And that was a huge theme last year at the conference. And I think increasingly becoming more of a focus for us. So I think that's that's one theme that I know we're going to hit on. I'll let Daryl add something else and then and then we'll and then we'll take back the reins of the podcast. Well, <laughs> actually, that interests, that interests me. What do you mean by the increased focus on the individual? Well, I think like as a baseline last year, when, when we did our first season of the podcast, we, um, you know, we one of the one of the most interesting topics that came up, I thought, was about the importance of um, eyesight for athletes, um, both in baseball and in basketball. And that being an increasing area of focus that um, that that GMs are starting to look at to identify um, like talent. And so it's an, an important asset. And so, as I think, Daryl obviously will focus more on, you know, what he can physically see. And there is a lot of work that's been done on the mental um, and, and sports psychology. And I think it's increasingly becoming a bigger focus. That's always been a passion of mine. And we're not there yet. But I think as we see more of the tracking of the player data, there's lots of HIPAA issues there, of course. But there's, um, you know, just a a variety of new data sets that are coming about the individual player and what their capabilities are both in terms of like, you probably saw uh, during the AFC championship last year that um, Mahomes, his uh, heart rate was higher when he was on the sideline than when he was in the game, right? So that type of a phenomenon, is that like an indication of how he performs and is that something you could be tracking or should be tracking and be making decisions potentially on who you're um, on, on who you're selecting? So, I mean, that's I, th I think in general, just was talking about instrumenting the individual as much as possible. I would say last year we did a lot with crypto. There might be a lot less crypto this year, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of uh, excitement at the startup level on that. So um, that was a big focus. Well, look, I'm still uh, I'm still very pro. The base technology of crypto but you know like all these new industries they're going to go through shakeouts and and things like that so um well and we also did a ton on um societal related elements of things that are going on so transgender was a topic that we covered last year malcolm gladwell who obviously uh you know is, is a big part of the podcast world um with, with you part of pushing well, Malcolm industries. got Michael into podcasting, I think. Uh, maybe I'm yeah. oversimplifying no, the way, it, no, the way it worked, he lied to me. He said, <laughs> he, he, said it, he said it's really easy and you make lots of money. And uh, it turned out both, it, both of those things turned out to be so false. Um, but it, it is a really fun way to get to an audience. And it's a different way to get to an audience. Wow. And it's a, um, for me, it's been, I mean, I, it, my podcast isn't like your podcast, right? I'm not, I'm not getting on and just talking to someone. I'm actually scripting these things. And so it's, it's written. It's a literary form. And this, this, the scripting of it um, is like, it's like working a different muscle. Uh, and, and, I, and it then feeds back in. I can see it feeding back into just the ordinary, to the, the main, books. The main thing I learned about Michael's podcast is it's so uh, – well put together that you can have a cameo and get cut just like a movie so you <laughs> did you have a cameo daryl came into the studio for an hour and it was really uh -huh. great it was all this stuff but 
It ended up not fitting anywhere. And no. so it's sitting there. It may get used one day. It's just like it didn't end up. It didn't. It didn't work for the episode that we were they were doing. And so, in fact, I'd say I'd say more than half of the people we interview never end up in the podcast. Yeah, wow. I think it proved yeah. to me just how I should not go into acting because because I I did so poorly. So no, no, no. It, yeah. it had nothing to do with you and everything to do with like what we were talking about. And I can't remember what it. I think what we were talking about at that point with NBA refs. NBA refs, and uh, it was good actually. I thought I was probably going to get fined anyway, so you probably saved me. Well, that was me. the other thing is you that you wanted, you were really interesting on all these other subjects and on the subjects of referees. You were kind of skittish. I was a little uh, skittish. That probably that probably came through in my performance. That's for sure. So, yeah. So Daryl, you got you got sent to the G League by Michael. I, that's basically what I got, happened. I got I got benched or traded to preview our game later. <laughs> <laughs> we have a game coming for you later, Michael. So Michael, one of the things that I love about about your podcast is that you really weave together all of the different themes that you seem to have interest in that you've written whole books about. Right. So yeah. you'll you have like coaching and you, like these overarching themes that to me are sports related, but then you tie them to government or finance or other elements that you you've kind of you know dove deeper on. Um, are is are you intending or trying to weave the stories in that way in the podcast because it's they're so interconnected and it's and I it feels like you're also pulling from old books and re revisiting them. It would be really inter interesting to hear how you're thinking, how you think about the podcast process. So, yeah, so the, the first idea for the podcast was, um, it, it was, it was, can we do, can we take a character in American life, a role in American life and a role that's been, been volatile and explore like what that volatility means and what's happened to the role and what it's telling us about our society. And the first season was about referees. Second season was about coaches. Third season was about experts. Fourth season is, I mean, we've got several possibilities. I'm not quite sure what the fourth season is going to be yet. Um, but the um, inevitably, every season, I look at stuff that I have written. And it's really clear that there's, that there's another way to use the same material, to repurpose some of the material. I mean, so for example, in the most recent season, experts, um, uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to do an, an episode on an expert who had triggered a revolution and him looking back on his revolution. And Bill James was just like sitting there. And I'd always, you know, if you go read Moneyball, I think it might be my favorite chapter in Moneyball, although the least discussed chapter in Moneyball um, was this just, it was just this me making sense of Bill James's career and, and his writing. And, He'd actually gotten me through the book. I mean, the baseball games got so boring after a while, and the press box—I I couldn't stand being in the press box. But I, so I just go off to some quiet part of the stadium when I was traveling with the A's. Point point of traveling with them, with them was to be able to talk to the players after the game, kind of thing, and uh, get to know my characters. And I just read old Bill James abstracts, and they were—it was—they were funny, they were moving, they were their own literary form. But what I never did in Moneyball, what I could do in the podcast, is get to like, why the hell he ever bothered to do what he did? You know, why, why starting at the age of whatever, eight or 10, does he start thinking about baseball? And, and, and then writing for an audience of one uh, about all, the, all the, his thoughts about baseball. 
And the, the podcast form, um, I don't know what you found, but I, what I found is you're, you're, you're writing for the ear. You're talking to the ear and not as opposed to the eye. And the ear, is, it, it has a different um, emotional range than the eye. It's a more emotionally sensitive instrument. Like the eye is really good for making a complicated argument. Uh, people can go back over it and read it again to explaining a complicated thing. Um, the ear is not so good. The ear doesn't take in. If I tried to explain collateralized debt obligations to you, it would be really hard for you to just listen to it and, and, and learn harder than reading about it. But if I try to present you with a really moving emotional story and I, I tell it to you as opposed to write it for you, it's so much easier to pull your strings. It's so much easier for you to become emotionally about hearing the voice. And, the, and Bill's, it turned out, the Bill, like the origin story of Bill James was so emotional. Uh, and, and his voice, you can hear it in his voice. You can hear his voice cracking when he's talking about it. That, that's, what, that's sort of like, to me, where the podcast pulls me in terms of the material. It pulls me towards the emotional side of the subjects. And the seasons, you know, yeah, each season is like seven episodes exploring different aspects of referees or coaches or experts and making, and usually like there's some broader argument or some broader, very loose, broad idea behind it. Uh, like in the case of referees, it was, you know, broadly, why is it that in lots of spheres of life, including the NBA, you kind of see that they, there's no way the refs aren't better than they were like 50 years ago. It's impossible. They can't not be, they can't be worse. They, they're, they're, they're vetted. They're, they're like trained. They get feedback. They get a chance to change their decisions when they look at tape. You know, it's like, there's no way the decisions are worse, but everybody treats them like they're worse. And the hostility that they face is much worse. Uh, so what's going on there? Like uh, um, experts, there was a version of that with experts. And it was sort of like, like we as a society are unbelievably gifted at generating expertise. I mean, we're a knowledge uh, creation machine in the United States, like no society in history has been. And that the byproduct of that is that we're an expert creation machine. Yet we are like increasingly stupid at using them, at, 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 making, at, at figuring out who they are, at listening to them. Um, why is that? And then the, the story sort of like dance, each episode sort of dances around that idea some. Um, but it's uh, it's different. It's like a really different form for me. It, it, and the, and the, maybe the biggest difference of all is it's not a it's a it's a team sport. I got a whole crowd of people on my around the table arguing with me about every move I make, as opposed to when I write a book, it's just me. Well, the thing that's so great about this experts one is that it it this season is that it really focuses on that contrarian and who who see think who sees things different than everyone else, which is really a consistent theme in most of your writing, anyways. But as you're saying, you're able to say, like, tell the story more finite. One of your your characters who is in Premonition, uh, your most recent book that that I absolutely love is is Charity Dean, and you know, here's this woman who really is an expert, and and yet, like, she can't necessarily be heard or isn't being heard. Um, I'd love to to hear a little bit more about like this level six expert, which you talked a little sure. bit in the podcast. Sure. She's, she never made it into the podcast, but an idea that sprung out of the, out of the premonition did. Um, and, and the, the, 
the thing that linked the two was a character named Todd Park. So let me tell, let's explain the world through Todd Park's eyes. And this is a way to explain Charity Dean and the episode in the podcast. Uh, Todd Park was a, you know, whatever, 30 years ago, was a young graduate of the Harvard Business School who, wanted, who worked at McKinsey, I think, and wanted to start a company and set out to start uh, a healthcare company with um, a couple of pals. And they had a kind of a quixotic, quixotic idea for three young people, um, three young guys. They, they decided that there was an inefficiency in pregnancy, that, uh, that women were not getting enough attention while they were pregnant. And as a result, medical outcomes were a lot more expensive than they needed to be. And if you applied money and resources to women while they were pregnant, you would have le less of these problems when the, when, at, during childbirth and after childbirth. And it would reduce, massively reduce like health insurance costs. They obviously didn't think it through that much because, um, because they, they went and bought a, uh, a, a clinic, a, a birthing clinic in, for low income people in San Diego to kind of try to test their theory out. And they couldn't get the insurers to, to pay for it, to pay for like this, the, the, during pregnancy care. No one bought in. They were, the, the insurers were effectively, happier to pay much more money to deal with the catastrophes than they were to prevent the catastrophes. Like this is our society, right? We just don't do, we don't do prevention. So they couldn't get paid. Uh, and they were, they were running through money at some fantastic rate. It was like a million dollars a year. And they, but they raised some money and they, they looked deeper into this clinic they bought and they realized that it was hemorrhaging money, even though it was pretty busy because they weren't getting paid by the health insurance companies, even for the work they were doing. And then they realized they weren't getting paid because the complexity of the health insurance industry had exploded. This was like 1990s. And there were like 50 different healthcare plans in, 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 with, with each health insurance company. And it was different from state to state. And in order to get paid, you had to know, you had to know how to fill in the form to get paid. And the, a little mistake on the form resulted in that your claim getting rejected. So they say, we're in the wrong business. We're going to get in the business of actually figuring out how to get doctors paid, which it turned out to be kind of a crisis that they, they stumbled into because they had it. They further find that there is actually an expertise. Uh, there's a person kind of in the basement of hospitals, in a windowless basement who no one appreciates, who's in the, in the billing department, who actually has become, had to master this material and get to get the hospital paid. But no one, it's always a woman. Half the time her name was Gladys, they said. <laughs> and, and Gladys was Gladys was a surly, bitter person because Gladys knew that she kept the hospital running and no one appreciated her. And when Gladys was bad at her job, like the doctor's office failed. Uh, but no one figured out the importance of Gladys. So they go to find the, the very best Gladys they can find. And they find a super a superwoman, this woman named Sue Henderson, who's like running circles around the health insurance industry and no one knows that she's got this expertise. And they realize that like, this is the beginning of Todd Park's re realization that who is Sue Henderson and who is Gladys? She is this nobody who's six levels down in the organization who, without whose expertise the organization collapses. But the organization often doesn't even know who she is or how to access her expertise when they need it. And I don't know if he coined the, the term the L6, 
But he started thinking of the L6 because he finds it instantly. They take Sue Henderson, what she knows, they code her into software, and, and it's transformative in businesses. Like, and it becomes, it's this company called Athena Health. It becomes a multi-billion oh, yeah. dollar company, right? Yep. He does it several <laughs> times over, always the same principle. Find the L6, find this expertise that nobody is appreciating, appreciate it, and, and figure out a way to sell it. Um, he takes the same insight into government. He becomes um, Obama's chief technology officer, uh, just as like bad things are happening in technology in 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 the in the federal government. Like for example, Obamacare gets rolled out and the and the website crashes the first day. And every time Top Park goes and he says, "Who's the L six who knows the answer to this question?" And sure enough, it's like six levels down, there's someone in a in a windowless room who knows the answer who nobody's talking to. Um, so that's the background for the the. the podcast episode is about Sue Henderson and like the discovery of this phenomenon. Um, the book is, and Todd Park partly led me to Charity Dean as the character. Uh. He got a call from Gavin Newsom or from someone in Gavin Newsom's office in the beginning of the pandemic, like very early, like March of 2020 or 2020. Is that right? Yes. 2020. <laughs> That's and, right. Um, um, and he, they, he says, we, we don't have in the California government saying, like, we're not getting any help from the federal government. We got to figure out we don't know what we're supposed to do. So Todd Park arrives and very kind of self-consciously starts walking around saying, who knows about infectious disease and viruses and stopping viruses? And he hears over and over from people, just kind of mid-level people, there's this woman named Charity Dean. So he goes and finds Charity Dean. And sure enough, she's literally six levels down from the governor. She's second in, in command at the California Department of Public Health. And for the previous eight weeks, she'd been told, maybe more than that, she'd been, she'd been talking about the pandemic, how it's going to happen, how many people were going to die. She had it whiteboarded out for everybody. She'd been told, she'd been banned from her buyer boss from meetings having to do with the pandemic. She'd been banned from using the word pandemic because she was told she was just scaring people. She was kept a long way from Gavin Newsom because nobody wanted her to get to, to Gavin Newsom. And Todd realized after about two days of being with her, he said, my job is to get what's in this woman's head onto Gavin Newsom's desk. And it took four months longer than it should have taken, right? But, um, but she, she becomes the strategy. Uh, but it becomes, in the, in the bargain, becomes endlessly disillusioned with government. Like, how, why was this so hard? You know, but... And it, I think it is generally true, though, that when you're in, and it's a, it's a mystery. It's like a, a mystery of big organizations, federal agencies, big corporations. When some operation gets, or some system, like the healthcare system, gets really complicated, um, it, it, gets, it becomes less and less capable of identifying the people who know things when, they need, when it needs those people, in, in, you know, in the ears of decision makers. The podcast that that, that episode is about that. It's to me. It seemed it's so. It was so odd with the book. It was so odd to me that if you spend a day with Charity Dean, you you feel like you were the superhero, and she's very persuasive, and very knowledgeable, and has lots of hand-on experience controlling infectious disease. And you think like, why is it so hard? Like, why was that person so hard? Why did it take Todd Park with his theory of the L six to come in and find her? Why didn't the government find her all by itself? Well, I think like the issue that we see consistently is like one, there's terrible data management. That's kind of the first 
thing that you identified and it's consistent. It's happened in sports. It's happened in the situation with uh, COVID. Then there's this process of data creation, which in my opinion is what like Charity Dean was really good at. Like, hey, we need to we need to be able to see what's happening. We need to track it. A lot of people wanted that, but she was uniquely able to get access to it. And then it's like, okay, now how are we gonna, what are we gonna do with this information? And she was the only one who was in a role that she could actually affect change, but no one would <laughs> listen to her, right? So that like that thread or arch is is really like a consistent issue or challenge that people face. And I mean, Daryl, even when you like were starting in sports and you wanted to get the player data, you had there was no there it, the data didn't exist, right? Yeah, you often had to create it. I was going to say, look, experts threaten people. You know, that's another reason. You know, and Michael mentioned that with people trying to keep charity uh, away from folks. Um, you know, and then I think on on top of that, you know, getting that information. Like, I love Twitter for the very reason that, you know, I think the both the expertise miracles that are out there and how dumb the world is collide in in really interesting ways like i think it was a couple days ago the new images from the jwst um you know telescope showing us these far-flung galaxies the amount of expertise level to do that is unheard of in human history next to it was like the wyoming governor's race you know sort of and the like the you know people like you know, saying the dumbest things possible that we're all doomed to be led by these people because no one smart will take these jobs. And it, it's, you know, we're we're just living in a very, AI may very shortly make everything we're doing seem really trivial. Uh, and yet at the same time, you know, I think our leaders and the, or the collective decision-making of our leaders is getting dumber, which is, you know, I think what Michael, you wrote about. Which yeah, no, was... it's frustrating, right? But Twitter's so interesting this way. You're right. It surfaces experts really fast. Like when the Ukrainian war broke out, the, um, the, the, Twitter was easily the best place to figure out, to see that, oh, this isn't going to be a three-day affair. And there's some real reasons, there are real problems with the Russian army. Not, it didn't, you didn't hear that from any of the official experts in the beginning um it, it, the official story was this thing's going to be over in a week or whatever it was i don't know if you remember this everybody's forgotten this but like the the intelligentsia this the, the people who are kind of like in government and state department all on, on people, both sides including people yeah. advising putin yeah yeah and and but uh, you go on twitter and there's trent talenko and he's like this guy in a basement in dallas i think in texas and who was like what looking at pictures that were being taken on the battlefield and saying oh like look at the tires on these russian trucks there's a reason this truck isn't going anywhere the tires are old they haven't been replaced in years why haven't they been replaced in years in any military they would normally have been replaced clearly this is a sign of endemic corruption in the russian army and the money that was meant that was intended for the tires it didn't didn't get to the didn't get to the truck so what else didn't get to where it was supposed to go in the Russian mm. army in the last 20 years? And he started to quickly pick up, like, not only that it wasn't going well for the Russians, but that what the why of it. And it was it was really interesting to watch. I mean, that's someone whose voice would never have been surfaced, but for Twitter. And that happens over and over and over again. Can I go um, back to something you mentioned earlier with Bill James? Because you've t 
talked to lots of revolutionary characters in in your the stories you've told, whether it be podcast now or book. Bill James being obviously one near and dear to my heart. I love the origin story of that. Against the rules, I learned so much on it. My question is, have you had another character who is that central to your writing who is actively trying to throw off his revolution? So he he's like, when you talk to Bill, I don't know if he mentioned this, he's almost like counter... He's almost trying to like make apologies for his past uh, at this point and basically saying he doesn't... You know, we know less than we thought we knew, which is probably right. Uh, but he almost seems like he's apologizing for the original revolution. Do you see that anywhere else? And, and uh, just in general, what are your thoughts on that? The violence with which he rebelled against his own revolution is pretty unusual. Um, I mean, and this isn't, this isn't just now. When he finished writing, he, he stopped writing the abstract. Because, I mean, I've never seen anybody do this. He wrote to his readers, I don't like you anymore. You know, I, I I used to like my readers and felt that they were knowledgeable and interesting, and it was a small group. And now, as it's gone, as it's now gotten bigger and bigger, I find there are increasing number of jackasses in my <laughs> audience. And I don't want to write for you. I mean, it, and and he was distressed by the misuse of numbers, um, and how misleading numbers could be if they were used stupidly. And, and it's very people. personal to him. If you just like today on Twitter. Someone didn't even tag his Twitter account, just tagged his name saying, you know, I don't want people to go full Bill James on this. And Bill chimes in, I don't even go full Bill James on Bill James. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's it's it's very interesting and uh, it almost makes yeah, him more he, unique of a character. He's he's the yeah. revolutionary revolutionary. Yeah, he is. Well, of. so I'm th there are people who are a bit like, I, you know, another character who who feels a bit this way to me is Danny Kahneman. Uh, so Kahneman and Tversky's work, so the book, The Undoing Project, in which you're the, you're, you're the first chapter of the book, uh, Daryl. Um, Kahneman, you know, Kahneman and Tversky um, were making arguments about the systematic errors the mind, the, the, the systematic errors that the human mind make when it's, it's, it's operating with intuition, uh, like the st even when there's statistics available to do, they do, the people don't do statistics and they make these systematic errors. Kahneman now um, would say, "Yeah, our work was true and fun, but um, but but the whole premise of the of the work was, you know, we, you can if you know about this, you can fix it." Uh, you know, if you if you know about the availability heuristic or representative heuristic, you can you can sort of like then adjust and 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 be smarter. He's totally fatalistic about it now. Sort of like you can't do anything about it. My respect so, for Kahneman went up so much recently when a lot of the priming, I think it's the priming work, hasn't been replicable. And he, it's it's amazing, Jessica. I don't know if you caught it. People will be like, well, what what about what do I do with Chapter seven of thinking fast and slow. He basically is like, skip it. <laughs> it's, it's it's completely wrong. <laughs> like, yeah, so how many people do that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Everybody digs in their heels and defends themselves. And he, Danny always hugs his enemy and says, "Yes, you're right. Yes, I was wrong." He, he never fights. He never fights. Um, we need so more of that. We need more of that. It's, it's probably true. 
Yes. That's probably that's probably true. Being um, able to see other sides and recognize the the limitations of of how you've been thinking. Well, and toss said, things out when there's new data, when there's new information. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. You know, you give him new information and he'll think about it in a different way. There's, but there's a spirit there that I just love. And the and it's a spirit and it's something he did when he was a young professor at the Hebrew University in his seminar. Um He'd have all these bright graduate students around a seminar table. They were all, he said, he said, students in Israel make, makes students in the, even the smartest students in the United States look soft. They're like at each other's throats all the time, seeking to be the best and the smartest in the classroom. He said they'd kind of rip into each other for the, the whole of the first seminar. And at the end of the seminar, Danny will say, well, from now on, we're not going to do that. From now on, when anybody in the seminar says anything, don't ask whether it's true ask what it's true of like take it and build on it um don't re don't reject and um and that's kind of how he responds to his his critics he tries to fix he tries to see when someone comes at you and they're critical and 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 oftentimes in a, in not the best spirit your first reaction is like to fight right um mm -hmm. that it's that danny says instead no i'm gonna i'm gonna embrace you and try to figure out, even if what you say is idiotic and hostile, I'm gonna to try to figure out if there's anything good in what you said. It's saintly. So, but he's, you know, he's, it's a similar kind of backing away a bit from the revolution he triggered. Um, apart from that, I can't think of anybody quite like Bill. Well, so actually this is something Daryl and I were talking about. And I wanna give uh, my wife Corbin credit for, for coming up with this, this, this idea. So talking about triggering a revolution, you know, Michael, your work has, you know, triggered a couple and changed the trajectory of industries, right? So obviously one of the biggest is the sports analytics movement. As you kind of said at the top, the, the sports analytics conference, you played a small part. I think you played a pretty large part. But have you ever thought about, I mean, not, not just sports, but have you ever thought about the value that your books have created in terms of moving entire industries in new ways and opening people's minds to new ways of thinking. And uh, I don't know, I just, have, have you thought about it? And if you haven't, I did wanna, you know, Daryl, I'm, I'm sure is thinking about it all the time. So Daryl, have you thought about how Michael's, uh, how Moneyball has impacted sports analytics? You wanna take a shot? You can't like so, act like you're asked Michael that question the whole time, and then just just switch it so, at so, the so, end. Because I provide some air cover for Daryl. Um, <laughs> He's a good friend, Daryl. <laughs> here's my here's my take on the the effect of Moneyball on the world. Um, when I was writing about the Oakland A's, John Henry had just bought the Boston Red Sox, and it was about to do with money what what the A's were doing without money, and was so intent on it that he was trying to hire Billy. And I think hired him for a day. And, um, and Theo Epstein was a young executive in their front office. And Theo was really eager to bring Billy in. Never imagining, I don't think, that if Billy turned him down, that John Henry would turn to Theo and say, you be the new Billy. You be our Billy. Um, and I was in the middle of all that, the conversations between them while I was writing the book. Um, so I could see that my, my days of having a scoop or the feeling of a scoop were numbered. That what was going to happen was, unless the A's won, there were two ways I was getting. If the A's won the World Series, they'd start to get the attention for what they were doing. 
And if the Boston Red Sox took it and started doing money, and in Boston with a big media around them and a lot of interest, then it would have been, it was going to get, this was going to be known. So I just, spe- I think I just speeded it up a little bit. I think the, it, this was going to happen anyway. If Moneyball had never been written, the Boston Red Sox would have gotten credit for the analytics revolution because they would have won a World Series and that would have triggered someone to write the book or tell the story about how they used advanced analytics to win the World Series. And Billy Bean would have been relegated to a footnote in that story. Um, to, to back that up, Michael, yeah, personal story. And then the, the, the overall impact's a little hard, I think. Be a good consulting uh, interview question, I guess. But um, the personal <laughs> story is, so Leslie Alexander, who owned the Houston Rockets, he had he's a very smart Wall Street guy, Michael's met him, uh, who... Um, knew that he wanted to do something different by the early 2000s because he had owned the team since 95. He had been told various stories about what you need to do to own a team. And he was smart enough to realize all the stories he was told were, you know, pretty bollocks, you know, like not. And he knew he was looking for something new. Um, And then obviously Moneyball comes out. And it's sort of like, I think Leslie would have gotten to it anyway but i think reading that book saying he wants more data-driven people in his organization all sort of came together and to michael's point sped it up but it probably happens it just it just gets delayed uh by a little bit longer Um, and and, and he goes and finds you yeah uh, and you know but finding me probably happened because of the book too because the headhunters that were involved they weren't even thinking of people like this until the book comes out. So it was sort of the catalyst that made it all sort of hit this crescendo quickly. And then obviously even till this day, as people know, come to the conference, then you just bash your head against the wall of, you know, the power structure in various sports and it's cascaded through sports. The NFL's moments really coming. You still even have a very prominent head coach, in the NFL today, ranting about how analytics are useless. I thought that the New York Giants guy was going to be the rat last guy to to put himself out there like that. Um, but who was it? Who was ranting about analytics being useless? Did you see it, Jessica? This is Daryl taking a shot at me. No, I didn't. no, no. I'm not taking a shot at you. Why am I taking? Oh, you're a shot? not. Oh, I thought you were. No, I'm not taking <laughs> a shot at you at all. Is the head coach of? I want to make. I want to get this right up. I think it's the. The Jaguars or the Pan—I think it's the Panthers. I'm going to look it up. To me, I saw a rant against analytics using straw man arguments, and I sort of tuned it out. But it was yet another one today. Well, so I think I think Michael, the the impact though is not just on the on the team side, the performance side. Because when I first started working with the Kraft family in 2002, um, like you know, your, the Moneyball came out um, shortly thereafter, and and someone's like, "Have you read this book?" And it got me thinking, okay, cool. How do I apply this to the customer side of the business? Oh. Right? <clears throat> yeah. And I think that, that so, I mean, there's a lot, the, the conference, the Sloan conference took a while to really have as big of a focus on the business side, but it's as the amount of customer data is now becoming more available and the advent of new sources with stream and gambling and NFTs and even NIL starting to happen in the college ranks, like the amount of data is just so massive that the opportunity to affect change on the business side and on understanding the customer 
is like actually I think probably far greater than even on the performance side. On so I have to basis. correct it. I have to correct it. So it was the who was it? It was the general manager of the Titans, John Robinson. Today, ninety percent of the decisions we make, we put the film on. You're hiring the guy to play football, not look at a bunch of numbers. I mean, you could lift that from thirty years ago. So I yeah, mean, that's it's, true. It's still you know. Do you, do you know where where um where where he pl- came from though John Robinson? I don't know. Like, like people think I, I know about the NFL, but yeah, I really don't. don't. <laughs> well, so anyways, I, I I think the the point is that the exercise of thinking about your influence, you know, you're you're talking about triggering a re- a revolution. I think the ripple effects of what you've done is is and what you've brought to bear by finding those contrarians. And then sharing the story is, I think, I think you're being humble. So appreciate you for being like that, but it's very vast. I, I, All humility is either a mistake or a false uh, in this case. So, so I, I don't mean to be humble. Well, I have, so I have a very specific question for you because Daryl and I have, and this is specifically you and how you are, who you are. So Daryl and I talk a lot about performance under pressure, uh, like, can can you quantify it? Is it something that you should be looking for people on uh, when when you're when you're scouting? Is that something that's relevant or important? Um, and so you you obviously had a very like important experience when you were in in high school, where um, you know you you were brought in in the last inning to pitch a game. You were 14 years old, and it was like your shining moment um, where you actually performed under pressure. So I guess the question, the question is, do you think that like you had some specific or you have some specific ability to perform under pressure? And did you ever, were you ever able to replicate that experience of performing under pressure like you did when you were 14 years old and won that game? So I'll I'll give you exactly what I think about myself, and some of it's not going to sound very humble. So (laughs) this is going to offset whatever humility points I got. But this is just to be honest, right? I'm just trying to be straight. All right. When I was a little kid, so this is all about. I think this the the point I was making in the book I wrote about this called Coach. Yeah. Yeah. The power of narrative in in a person's self understanding and how Mm -hmm. powerful. A teacher can be in helping you figure out what your story is, what your narrative is. But there has to be something there to work with. You can't tell a story without the material. So the the broader situation was, I was really a good athlete when I was little. Like like I was a really good basketball player, really good baseball player. Like and then I didn't. Then I hit. Pu- I was young for my class, and I hit puberty late. So I, I, that's what you're walking in in the moment where I have now fallen for two years, sort of slipped behind because everybody all, all, all of a sudden has muscles and has grown six inches. And I'm just starting to like, oh, I can even go out on this field again. Um, and I had always been great under pressure. Uh, you know, as a little kid, like free throws at the end of the game, I was who you wanted on the free throw line. And, and it was never like, I, and I always thought of that myself that way. But I'd lost it. In, in 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 over a couple of years, I was like, you know, I, I everybody else had all these assets I didn't have. I started to think I wasn't going to play sports anymore. I was like, uh, it was really devastating. And then this coach sweeps me onto this team, and this team is in this you know very pressure packed situation. 
the starting pitcher gets mistakenly pulled out of the game and there's no one else to go in but me. So the coach, the genius of that moment was, yeah, I went in and I did great, but I could have done badly. And I think he, I think he was smart enough that he would not have, he just let that slide. And he would have waited for the moment when I did well under pressure. And he have said, that's who you are. It just so happened that first time I went out, it all worked out great. I mean, it all worked out great. And he seized on the moment and said, that's who you are. And, and, mm. and I was so hungry for a story about myself that was yeah. more flattering than what I'd actually been the previous couple of years that I just said, yeah, that's who I am. Now, you tell yourself you're something enough and you become mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. that's why you got to be so careful about the stories you tell yourself. So careful. There's so many stories looking to kind of insinuate themselves into your brain about yourself that you're a victim, mm -hmm. that your life is your life is tragic, that that uh, people are mean to you, or whatever it is, that just screw up your the way you move through the world. And there are other stories that, if you reinforce them, uh, take you to great places. And that story that give me the ball in moments of pressure is enormously helpful in life because you yeah. never know when you're in these moments, when you're going to find yourself in these moments. But yeah. even now, like every book, there's a moment where, oh crap, I've got to, I've got to deliver this thing in six months. I don't know, you know, because a gun, it feels like there's a gun to my head. The, it feels like a lot of people are watching. It feels yeah. like an athletic moment. And I, and that, and knowing what, getting that feeling gets me going. It's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And, and that all goes back to that. It all goes back to that story. I you feel know, like, I feel like you told yourself that story too, Jessica. Cause she was I very clutch. Did. No, I, yes. I feel so connected to Michael. Yes. I did, but also Michael, you in the, in the premonition book, you have this line where you're talking about, and of course you know this, but you have this line where you're talking about Carter Metcher and um, he's, I'm just going to read it to you, but he said, but he couldn't help but notice that very few medical students shared his enthusiasm for human beings on the brink of death. They felt the pressure. The pressure led to mistakes. And I was reading that and I'm like, oh, I understand what Michael's doing here. He knows what it feels like to perform under pressure and he's connecting it. I mean, is that right? There's some truth to that. It made me connect to him and him connect to me. He's less egotistical than I am. He's really self-effacing. I mean, he's genuinely, he, no, he's genuinely humble. I generate some false humility every now and then. He's genuinely humble. Uh, but what he was saying, and what he was saying about himself, it was kind of curious about himself, was he was sort of uh, watching himself in a, in a, in, uh, as, a, as a third party observer would watch him. He said, you know, I'm kind of odd. He's, he was saying in so many words, I'm kind of odd because I have ADD or ADHD or whatever those things are, but I had it before anybody diagnosed it. And it's a really odd, these attention problems are a really odd trait in a doctor because they usually get weeded out in medical school because you don't do well and you don't listen in class. Um, and he managed to, he, but he had the thing, he had the hyper-focus thing. And he managed to he never learn anything in class, but he'd go learn what he needed to learn all by himself in the library. But at day-to-day -day doctoring, you got to kind of have lots of doctoring. It pays to maintain a pretty steady level of attention and not let things slip through. Uh, he was not really suited for any of it, he thought, until he hit the ICU. And it was, you're basically moving from crisis to crisis. And the crisis focused his, his attention so mm -hmm. that the, the problem, you got the hyper-focus thing going. And, and he, he found he, he, unlike the other doctors, was great at that. Bad at almost everything else, great at that. 
And he was saying that about himself. And I, I related a bit to that, too. Um, I'm, I'm sort of not so good at I have a little of that, too. Uh, you know, all my kids are ADD, ADHD, and my wife is the opposite. So it's pretty clear where it comes from. Uh, I, I've never been diagnosed with anything, but it's, you know, as when I walk into a room, my wife and eldest daughter, and I start making conversation with them. It's usually about five minutes before they turn to each other, start laughing and say, squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> oh, from up. Yeah, I use that reference yeah, all the time. Yes. Yeah. Actually, uh Lance, uh, who's helping produce this, that's one of his favorite lines. So we'll let him come, come in yeah. at the end. So, so I but. did connect. It, and you, I, with the people I write about, you are, I mean, you're just kind of naturally looking for, I mean, one way to understand people is the ways, the things they share with you, you know? So yeah. you are looking, at, you're, you're grabbing onto those things. Do we need well, to go to our game, Jessica? We do. Anyways, my God, that was really fascinating for me. Thank you for sharing. That's that's one of my favorite topics to talk about. So we can. Well, on so that, that was a time. great. I, I have one tiny question. Then we got to jump jump into our game. It's do you think that story you told yourself, Michael, was actually predictive, meaning that you were better in these clutch moments, or was there a random factor of of your clutch performance? that then created a sort of a virtuous loop that made you better over time. Does that, did my it question the, make it, sense? It was the latter, but Catalyst was this very persuasive, large man, my coach, <laughs> insisting the story was true. That I wouldn't have generated the story all by myself. He so, helped generate, he, he generated the story and I grabbed onto it and just kept telling it over and over. So that's but like he, the teachers who come in with high expectations usually have higher achieving students than the ones who come in thinking, oh, I've got a class of, you know, guys, people who aren't high achievers. So. The, that, that second teacher is coming in with a story that's very damaging, right? right? You know, right. effectively saying in so many ways, you're not, you're not very good. You're never going to be very good. Absolutely. Uh, whereas, but then you have whereas, whereas my coach, I mean, it's preposterous. I was a five foot, four inch, you know, <laughs> 90 pound, 14 year old or whatever. And, and he's telling me the next day that I remind him of Catfish Hunter, who he caught. <laughs> he, he said, you're, just, you're actually just like Catfish Hunter. And I'm believing it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. He saw something in you. He did this do. with a lot of kids. He just, he just was able to do this. All right, we have a game, Michael. It's bench, trade, or tag. It's our version. Tag. Oh, yeah, right. it's our version of Kiss date or marry uh just to be clear trade is the worst you want them gone benches you know you don't want them playing as much and franchise tag tag is the the pinnacle so and this so it's just bench trade tag there's no start or it, it's it, <laughs> we're gonna give you three don't, options don't try to make it make sense okay don't try to make it make sense just roll okay. with it all right. Okay. all right um all right the movie versions of your books the big short blind side or Moneyball. am i supposed to say bench trade or tag about all three no, you, you have to pick the one you're going to bench, the one you're going to trade, and the one you're going to tag. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you just given me LeBron. You just given me Andy, Steph, and 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 Clay. And right, you're you're allowed. You're allowed <laughs> to skip one tag. question. You're allowed so, to skip again, one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this. I'm gonna, I'll give you the answer, but but it's 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 the effect. <laughs> I'm I'm answering the effect it's had they had on my on my life. Okay. Oh. Tag the blind side, because without the blind side, you would not have gotten Moneyball. Um, uh, bench Moneyball and, and trade the big short. Gotcha. Wait, can you explain why 
why we wouldn't have gotten because the blind side because I'd had a gazillion things option. Nobody ever made anything. People thought all oh, these stories aren't movies. The blind side gets made and makes half a billion dollars. Uh, I mean, it's like the most, it's like among the most successful sports movies of all time and arguably among the most profitable movies of all time. They talk, cost nothing to make. And so all of a sudden people are looking around at my books and say, hey, maybe these things will work as movies. And I think, I don't think the Moneyball would have gotten made if, if the blind side wasn't there as an example. And, and I don't think, I certainly don't think the big short would have caught anybody's attention as a movie if Moneyball hadn't been made. So I think mm -hmm. that they were each indebted to the one before it. All right. From from these movies, there are some key moments. Uh, from Moneyball, what does he do? Get on base. Leanne Tui explains to the coach how to reach Michael with the protection, obviously. Yeah. And then Margot Robbie explains complex topics in the big short. All right. I'm going to judge these by their importance to the movie. Uh, tag Margot Robbie um, because that was the the hardest nut to crack was how the hell do you get people to understand like a credit default swap or even think they it isn't getting them to understand it making them feel they heard what they needed to know. You did Adam? Margot Robbie did Adam come up with that I, uh, yes, idea? Yes, he did. Adam That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. That you, I'm gonna tag that. I'm gonna trade uh, the Blindside moment because there were so many emotional moments in that movie. You could do you could you could lose a, you could lose one or two and you still have it. And I'll bench the I'll bench the what does he do get on base? All right, Jessica, you jump in when you want, but uh... I mean, Moneyball's getting benched a lot. It's <laughs> the second Moneyball bench. <laughs> All right, there's been some recent rule changes across the sports. Uh, there's the new Major League Baseball playoff structure, mostly more teams being involved. There's the new NFL overtime rules, which, again, is trying to make it more fair versus having a coin flip really influence the outcome. And then in the NBA, this is a close rule. It's a, It's been changed in the minor league. It's getting close in the NBA, which is you just take one free throw for all trips to the free throw line uh, instead of having to shoot all these free throws and have everyone watch you shoot them. God, that's so funny. Walker, my son's team, just played a tournament, and – the rule in the tournament was one free throw. Great. For, even for a three, for a three. I thought that was crazy. But uh, yeah, that's how it is in the G League too. Yeah. Is that true? I didn't know yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So, and you want me to, I'll do, okay. So I will, I'll tag ba the baseball rule change. And in fact, I'd go even more extreme. I think that with analytics, with intellectual advantage, having ceased to be an equalizing force, uh, uh, um, and more and more, it's sort of like looking for look, rich teams are just going to like, it's just harder and harder, I think, for a poor team. Um, you need to toss more randomness in. And you need, and it's sort of like any the, the feeling that anybody can win. And anybody can win a, a playoff series. In, baseball's got so much randomness in it that I, I want to go with that. I would say let it be even more in. Um, go even further. And it, it'll, it'll piss off Yankees and Red Sox fans because they, you know, they're in the privileged position but it'll make it more interesting for the whole country to watch one and done too in major uh, baseball i think i i think i'd probably make it two out of three because okay i think but not two out there's of three e there's even a limit to your randomness that you want i got you okay. yeah um anyway so uh so I'll, i'm a tag i think that's i think it's a, like baseball is an existential crisis so we're going to tag anything that makes baseball um a little better to watch 
I have my own solution for how to make fix baseball, but then we'll put that to one side. Um, Ooh. And the the um, <laughs> we're gonna, you're so gonna maybe have to the, tell us that. <laughs> I will trade the NBA free throws because I actually like watching them oh. shoot free throws. I, I I love it. I, I love it, so especially when it's, especially when they suck at it. I love it. <laughs> it, it I, I just and I think it's the thing that. You know, when Giannis or whoever gets up and bricks two free throws, it makes everybody feel like, oh, I could be out there because I could because I can make that. I can make I'm better than that. So I think I like the, the, the dramatization of their ineptitude from the free throw line is actually I think uh, it lets every man in, into the game. This is why Michael loved the last guy to shoot underhand Anawaku in the NBA, yeah. who was who on our team. You you want more people shooting underhand? What, I know that. Before, I'm going to go to the next question, but before that, mm-hmm. Michael, like a couple of points about how you fix baseball yes. because we really want to know. Oh, so it's simple. The smart way to play baseball is not to move very much. Uh, I mean, it's just like they've reduced the mobility on the field. It's the opposite of bas- basketball and football, where the smart way to play mm-hmm. is like air it out with a passing game or you know shoot a lot of three point shots. And uh, so baseball has this problem with people just aren't moving very much, and it's like less at stake any moment. So what you do is you put a lion on the field, a live lion. You get, <laughs> uh, you get, you, you go, you go, you get, you go, and not just like a zoo lion, you get one from the savannah. You get like a real hunt and you put it out there. I promise you everybody can move fast. And, and uh, like, I promise you people will be stealing bases that they will be, that, that everybody's going to be moving and everybody's going to be playing, you know, pop, routine pop-ups are no longer going to be routine. It's like you got to oh, have boy. one eye on the line. It's a very, so, it's a very okay. Roman solution. We're bringing lions back into our entertainment. Yeah, this it. is uh, it would still the, be less dangerous than football. I'm going to do the last uh, trade tag or bench. And it's about the impact on the game slash people around the game. Okay. So this is going to be surprise who I'm going to who I'm going to say first. Daryl, Billy Bean, or Billy Fitzgerald. Billy, Billy Fitzgerald is your is your coach for those of uh, your coach from high school. For those, well, of why are you doing this? I got to tag, bench, or trade these people. Yeah, yeah. Tra- trade me, please. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to trade. I'm going to trade Daryl only because I can't imagine offending either of the Billies from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll make the argument that. If Moneyball was important, Moneyball was dedicated to Billy Fitzgerald. It, ah. uh, I, I don't write Moneyball without Billy Fitzgerald. Um, yep. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna tag Billy Fitzgerald. I'll bench Billy Bean, and I'll trade Daryl. Daryl, you know why? You're only in a chapter of the book. The others have their own book. Was, was I like Shane? Was I <laughs> traded for Hashim to beat, or did we get something? Good? <laughs> Or did we get something good for me? <laughs> so I want to know. We got two Sam Hankies. Oh, that's 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 a good trade. Do so, that every time. So, Michael, the last the last question I have, um, I actually reached out to Charity Dean, and I asked her what was a question that she would like your insights on. Um, and so, you know, I guess the first the first question preamble to her question is: Do you think that we are? at the precipice of a, a global financial market collapse. She recession. asked me that? No, she, I, no, she has a bunch of stuff about what it's going to do. I'm asking you if you think. <laughs> um, you know, there's not a yes, no answer to this. I'll assign pr- a probability. And, we're, and okay. what do you mean by global financial collapse? Do you mean like the stock market goes down 50% or crypto goes away 
or 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 the U.S. government defaults on its debt. Her, her perspective in, in her question was that you've written books about tech startups, the new new thing, about the financial market collapses with the big short, about humans' perception of risk with the, the undoing project, about the fate of IEX with Flash Boys and the fate of PHC with Premonition. You uniquely can offer perspective if we go into a global recession or financial collapse, like what do you think, how is it going to impact VC and the housing markets and the tech sector and maybe so, even sports? Uh, asset prices will probably go down some more, but I, I, it's we're the richest society in history and we're living in a time of greater prosperity than any other time in history. There are huge reservoirs of capital looking to be deployed. I, I, don't, I think that it's kind of asking the wrong question. Okay. Do we risk societal collapse? Yeah. Never mind financial collapse. No, if the society doesn't collapse, this whole thing will bounce. But I think there's some non-trivial possibility that our society could collapse. Like that, that um, it's sort of like 5%. Uh, that we could find ourselves in a situation where where there is no, where the federal government's, on, it, it, the, the, the basis of the financial order is the riskless asset that the U.S. Treasury bond is. And all of a sudden, the U.S. Treasury bond is not regarded as a riskless asset. That it's, it, mm. that it, and in fact, the United States government doesn't have any ability to repay its debts, uh, except print money. So you get runaway inflation. I think that's, it's not, that's, I think that's I don't, highly unlikely, but I think that's possible. Also possible that there's a lot of violence in the society um, as a result of the breakdown in the democracy, um, the society's ability to, to adjudicate its disputes in a peaceable way. Um, I mean, I think if you actually, it's funny, I think if you went back and um, presented someone from 50 years ago with the school shootings, with, you know, with, the, with the violence we have, they'd say that's, a, that's social, break, that looks like social breakdown to me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think there's some risk that the United States ceases to be a real democracy. And, um, but I think it's non-trivial, but it's very small. And, um, but I don't think there's much risk that if that doesn't happen, that we're going to be in like some global economic financial cataclysm. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I mean, stock market may go down some. Crypto might go away. Uh, that could, it could, it could happen. I don't think it will. But I think could new things are often additive. It's just how big do they become, right? And yeah. old things almost never go away. So I would say there's too many smart people working on crypto for it to not find a niche yeah. of its base technology. But it could be much smaller than people are clearly anticipating at this point. You know, it's sort of funny how much innovation and change starts with a desire for something when 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 there's actually no ability, there's no real thing being supplied. Think of medicine, like thousands of years, people, there are doctors who could, who are likely to kill you is to help you. People are so hungered for medical treatment and eventually, oh my God, now they can do something. Uh, crypto feels a bit like that. Like, like it doesn't actually, it, whatever the original, people are hungering for something, but it actually, doesn't serve any of the original purposes it set out to serve, uh, it, but they're still hungering for for something, and for it to be out there. And I, 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 it'd be interesting to see. It needs its narrative. It, it, its story keeps changing, and none of the stories seem plausible yet. I like the doctor analogy because they've been living off the placebo effect and the body's ability to heal itself for yeah. a long yeah. time until they 
came with some really good stuff like antibiotics. Yeah. That's that's some good stuff that yeah. came with. Yeah. Well, and, and now, you know, really advanced yeah. vaccines, you know, so. I guess we know what Michael will be leading a panel on at Sloan next year. Something about crypto. <laughs> I'd be happy to um, do it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was really fun to, to learn about how you see the world and how some parts of your life have influenced how, how the characters and protagonists that you choose, including our friend Daryl. So thank you so much for your time, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Uh, total pleasure. That was a really fun conversation. I was I was really taken aback by the cold call that he <laughs> threw at us to start. It was great. It was mostly because I didn't understand how our script worked. I, it was well. I really enjoyed it. We we definitely went in a lot of different angles. But I, I'll start with what are what were my main takeaways. Um, you know, the first was I loved his concept of triggering a revolution with Bill James and telling his origin story because that was a really interesting part of the podcast. And I loved your question about rebelling against the revolution they started. That was just an awesome question. Um, I was really fascinated by his description of podcasts from the perspective of it capturing emotion, because I actually feel like in his books, you feel a lot of the emotion. So I'm wondering if like telling the podcast or for him to be telling the podcast, he feels more emotion in it because I, he's such a great storyteller that I feel like I hear it in his books or feel it when I'm reading. Uh, obviously, I love the pressure situation. I think for us to get some insights into Michael, the person, and how that translates into his writing was was really fun. Um, and then the other thing is, I we have had people shy away from our bench trade tag. How how he takes the question and flipped it into something he was comfortable. He was trying like, not to get aggregated, is what he was trying to do, <laughs> <laughs> which is smart, very smart, actually. And then I don't know, I think like, I'm not sure how well I'm going to sleep tonight, knowing that he thinks there's a 5% chance of societal collapse. <laughs> well, it's probably higher. If you, have to, if you talk to Caleb, he'd probably say it's even higher than that. So oh, God. just to uh, just to make it fun. I, I'm always mostly impressed. And I appreciate Jessica goes first because I can't summarize. So I can think of the things that are the most important thing to me um, <laughs> while you're talking. And I think the stories we tell ourselves is something, obviously I have kids and you have kids, Jessica. Um, that's something I always emphasize and to hear that it made such an impact in Michael's life. I would say often it's your own children who have their own negative self stories sometimes that you as a parent or a coach are trying to turn them around on. And uh, to me, like that's the most important takeaway is Make sure not only are you around people who people say be around people smarter than you, be around people who are positive, kind people who are smarter, but also who are helping you reinforce the positive stories in your life that make you uh, make you succeed and happy, hopefully. So. Well, there's a, this is actually interesting um, to make it about me for a second. <laughs> My, I was playing ping pong with Reese. And he, he he was getting so frustrated because he kept losing points. Um, and I said, just just focus on like trying to get to double digits. And when he stopped being so hard on himself, when he would make a good shot, and I was like, that was a great shot. That was a great shot. It was amazing to just like watch the shift in his demeanor. But that, you know, what is the story you're telling yourself? Not that you're not getting points, or you're not getting it in, but you're flipping how you're interpreting the situation 
like that definition of what is a win. A win isn't necessarily winning the game. A win is like, how did you perform in the game? So that was excellent. Shifting that focus for him was pretty smart. Yeah. Sounds like you're a pretty good parent, Jessica. No, actually, Daryl, a couple like two years ago when I told you that uh, he was picking up chess, you were like, well, you have to you have to you have to take some of your pieces off to make it more fair. So uh, that was (laughs) you do that or no? Yeah, that's what or I you do just with or do you just crush him mercilessly. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I, but I I do try to give him points in ping pong. Now he doesn't want it anymore. So, that's great. Yeah, well, that was a fun episode. Always a treat to have Michael fun. Lewis, and uh, yeah, and he's coming and, to Sloan next year. We'll do it on pressure. Heard it here first. Heard it here first. <laughs> we got our headliner. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. All right. Good luck over there, Daryl. Thanks, right, everyone. Thanks. If you enjoy this podcast, please submit questions, comments, or future topic ideas to trash talking at sloansportsconference.com. Is it data or data?